Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm joined by Simon Cartledge, the former editor-in-chief of the Economist Intelligence Unit and the owner of Big Brains Limited, an independent Hong Kong-based research and publishing company. Simon Cartledge is the author of A System Apart, Hong Kong's Political Economy from 1997 until now, a Penguin special and part of a series to mark 20 years since the handover. I came to Hong Kong in 1991. That was after living in Beijing for, for just over two years. I'd really enjoyed living in Beijing. It's a very interesting place. I lived there for a very exciting time through June 1989. I also lived there through 1991, which is not so interesting. And I wanted to change. I wanted to stay in part of the world that's very Chinese. I'd visited Hong Kong before. I knew I liked the place. Can I take you back to 1989 first? When you say you experienced that, how do you mean? Uh, well, I was working in Beijing. I had a, a one-year contract from June 1989. 88 to June 1989. I don't think I could have chosen a better year in recent Chinese history. I arrived and the place was in foment. There was extraordinary energy in the city then. Uh, there was uh, all sorts of events taking place, cultural events, poetry readings, film showings, art exhibitions. I think those are the ones I remembered most. And then on top of that, this political movement came along out of to me not quite out of nowhere, but utterly surprising and very exciting to watch and, and see, see how it unfolded until the end, of course. So what were you doing in Beijing? I was working for a Chinese government-owned publication called Beijing Review. It's a, I guess it was a propaganda. And it still exists as a, a propaganda publication. But it was a very interesting year. They, that was at the end of the 80s. Uh, China was opening to the West, and they were, they were looking at even publications like Beijing Review and how they could change them, how they could make them... Uh, I guess more open, more like journalism in the West. So, Simon Cartledge, you then came to Hong Kong in 1991. So did you immediately start off as a publisher? Uh, no, I started off as working as for a news agency, which was Agence France Press for a year, which was quite interesting, but not quite what I wanted to do either. And then I was very lucky. I got a job working for an offshoot of The Economist, The Economist Intelligence Unit, editing a publication, a newsletter called Business China, which, like its name suggests, was about business in China. And that happened to be the period from 1992 onwards when, when China, China's economy just uh, started taking off. Your book, A System Apart, Hong Kong's Political Economy from 1997, really does take us back over that 20 years. For me, it also reminded me, I mean, obviously I've lived here during that period, and it's, uh, it's surprising when your day-to-day existence sometimes, what you do forget. It gave me an opportunity to think back on the last 20 years and what happened in Hong Kong over that period and how Hong Kong had changed. Certainly there are some changes which I think you, you can't say it for the better. I mean, the 1990s were an extraordinary period. The years up until 1997, when the economy was going through this extraordinary boom. And again, it was a bit like Beijing in the, before 1989. There was a phenomenal number of things happening in the city on, on all kind of fronts, culturally, or economically, and politically as well. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we look back at, in Hong Kong at the 1960s to the 1990s, it's a, a real period of growth. I mean, I think you can't also rose-tinted either. I mean, you know, we've got to look at the issues of labour rights and these things were sometimes a bit slow to follow. But in terms of, if we pick the story up uh, in 1997, I mean, what would you have said the, the sort of economic picture and political picture of Hong Kong was at that time? I think you're right about there being various sort of rights and you know, especially social issues which perhaps weren't addressed through the 
70s, 80s and 90s. But uh, one of the things that stood out when I went back and looked at the various uh, economic indicators for the period was just wage rises. They were going up across the board from the poorest segment of society to the richest segment of society. Now, like many societies, the richest were doing very well for themselves, but so was everyone else. And I think this is really striking. The very bottom segments were actually doing better than the, the middle segments. So you were seeing everybody increase their well-offness across the board. And I think that must have made people pretty happy on the whole. Yes, yeah, so there was a sense of uh, perhaps moving forward in the city. But you now talk of wage stagnation, housing inaffordability, some of our current problems. What I did find interesting, which I hadn't picked up, was just how well-educated young people in Hong Kong have become. I mean, there's been a real growth in the number of tertiary educated here. Yeah, again, that was something that... I had thought about it, but not a lot, and I went back and looked at it in detail. And obviously, at the end of the 80s, some government department must have made a decision to expand tertiary education, because through the 1990s, from having just two universities at the start of the 1990s, Hong Kong has about 12 now. The big growth came in the 1990s. And it looks, I mean, I'd like to go back and check this a bit more, as if people were saying, OK, Hong Kong's changing, it's moving from being a manufacturing-based economy to a services economy. So we're going to have to train people in a different way. We're going to have to give them the, the knowledge to cope with being a more knowledge-based economy. Yes, because you write, in 1997, less than a quarter of people aged 18 to 32 had tertiary education. Now the figure is about half. But that doesn't necessarily make, you know, does that mean that there are jobs for all those students? It's quite clear now that a lot of the, the jobs people hoped would come haven't. Hong Kong is still dominated by two industries, finance and trade and logistics. Uh, those two were very dominant, they are still very dominant, but nothing, nothing else has really come along on top of it, unless you count tourism. But tourism doesn't create high-paying jobs, it's a very sort of low-end industry, I think. We've just got the gay games, and, uh, you know, that, uh, just based on economic terms, I'm hearing figures of that could easily bring in one billion Hong Kong dollars with the, the thousands of um, athletes uh, that will come in and the tourism that it will engender. It's also the first city in Asia to host the gay games, yet that hasn't been, even from a PR perspective, embraced by the government. Yeah, that's a bit of a shame. I think this is really quite exciting. When I heard the news, I thought, oh, this is, this is, this is quite a a big step forward for Hong Kong to be able to put on an event like that, to plan for it, to, to bill itself as an open city, open in all manner of ways. So I, mean, I, hope, the government, <laughs> I hope the government does support it full-heartedly. Full One of your key arguments in the, in the book is for Hong Kong to now move forward, it really needs to look at its political structure. Yes. In the run-up to 1997, with the, the writing of the basic law and everything, there was a couple of clear goals. One of them was to try and keep Hong Kong's economy strong and the other one was to give it political stability. Unfortunately <laughs> the, the basic law seems to have uh, locked things in too well because you end up with a city where the, the vested business interests have got too much support, it's too hard to displace them and the, uh, the political system has, has kind of backfired. I mean from being you know, I think in 1997 I went back and checked the opinion polls, people basically accepted what was happening and this, Hong Kong was moving on, it was returning back to China. Some people liked this, some people didn't. But there was no questioning that was happening. Now you've got a, an independence movement, a small one maybe, but I mean, that's got to be a product of the last 20 years. That, that wasn't there 20 years ago. It's just a bit of a condemnation of government policies over the decade, two decades, to have produced that. 
Well, they've now got, I mean, I was hearing Carrie Lamb was talking about, um, and she's given a, a new name. She, the idea is to get young people involved in government decisions. I guess, what kind of young people? I mean, there's a lot of young people with ideas and interesting, very creative out there, but where, will they be the ones that get involved? And will they be the ones who are listened to? You can't be too optimistic about that, I'm afraid. We've got so many issues here in, in terms of how Hong Kong has gone over the last two decades. In 2003, of course, was SARS. 2003 also witnessed 500,000 people on the street reacting to... Uh, Tung Chi was the first chief executive's attempt to implement Article 23, an anti-sedition law. But there must also be external factors, you know, the fact that Hong Kong's housing is now becoming unaffordable for the average person, that, that a lot of these things. Are, it's, it's just like the city structures, the political structures to blame, or is that lots of external factors? I think the the reasons were internal, not external. When you look back on the decades before, obviously I wasn't here to experience it, but I think one of the striking things is, is, is the way Hong Kong found space to do new things. One of the things that struck me since the early 2000s is how difficult it's found getting the, the space to try out new things, where people can say, OK, this is a new, a new area we should be moving into. The last time I'm aware of it was the dot-com era, when there seemed to be quite a serious attempt by Hong Kong companies to try and see what they could do with the internet, whether they could create their own companies, maybe for China, maybe for Hong Kong, maybe for Asia. But since then, there's been no... You can't say, oh, here's a new industry, here's a new area that Hong Kong companies have moved into try to try to establish themselves. I think one of the indicators is there's been no new tycoons in Hong Kong. You can't point to any new big Hong Kong business that's emerged since the 1990s. I mean, before that, we have all the great tycoons, all the Lee Ka-sings and all the Sinolands, the Sun Hong Kais, and the other people who made enormous fortunes. Uh, the last person I'm aware of, who I recall a successful Hong Kong businessman, was Jimmy Lai. Since Jimmy Lai, I can't think of anybody who's made a name building a business in Hong Kong. And that's despite having China on its doorstep, despite having all those huge opportunities to tap into China's growth. So what do you feel is going wrong in that case? I think a lot of it goes back to a system which is aimed at protecting existing businesses. So how are these businesses protected and why doesn't it allow for others to come almost in into the system? So it works for the bigger corporations, but if you want to set up a small company, Hong Kong isn't as entrepreneurial or as open as we may think it is. I think what happened in 1997 was that the government changed. Before that, it was a colonial government which had some advantages and some drawbacks. Perhaps the, the biggest advantage, I think, was in some ways it didn't really care. Yeah, it may have favoured the idea of business doing well, but it didn't really care which businesses did very well. Since 1997, you've had a succession of chief executives, especially, I think, Tong Chiwa and Donald Zhang, who were quite in favour of supporting existing business. They, they looked back at what had made Hong Kong so successful and they looked at the, those businesses and said, right, let's keep them going, let's make sure they, they carry on. Donald Zhang and Tong Chi to some extent, both, both did go out and look at ways of setting up new businesses. But I think overall, you would have to say they supported the existing ones more. I'm talking with Simon Cartledge, the author of A System Apart, Hong Kong's Political Economy from 1997.
Now, in terms of looking back to 1997, you were here for the handover? Yes, I was here for the handover. <laughs> and did you have any sense of trepidation or excitement or uh, did you just feel it was just a, a historical moment that we've been waiting for the last 99 years for anyway? <laughs> well, fortunately, I was asked to write a report about uh, what would happen to business after the handover so and i was able to go back and look at that and see what i thought <laughs> at the time because i could read that and, and, and see what i'd written down and uh, interestingly i think i was quite positive i looked saw it more as a, a transition that was quite natural that britain shouldn't really be owning far-flung territories around the world and there were lots of it was an interesting period you didn't know where it was going let's see what would happen and of course the economy looked very rosy at the time and then in so if we take the period up to um the early 2000s is that projection still happening no the my the projection of the report was almost completely wrong on almost every every aspect <laughs> uh, i think nobody saw the asian financial crisis coming and that happened literally a day after the handover and that knocked hong kong backwards at the time i think like many other people accepted that this was an external thing it wasn't really anything to do with hong kong it wasn't hong kong's fault certainly and hong kong wasn't guilty of the same kind of sins that other countries across southeast asia had committed but it definitely it brought on on the first recession in 50 years and that was a shock and then uh, there was a minor recovery for the dot-com era but then a series of more shocks the dot-com crash sars followed by the global financial crisis it was a pretty grim 10 years in some ways as you say that some of those factors though are external yeah i think they were external and that probably masked what was going on or what i saw was going on at the time because when i looked at the say a gdp chart you could see over the decades hong kong had gone spectacularly up and spectacularly down and that was the same after 1997 you know it had a big crash but then recovered quite quickly then crashed again then recovered the only thing was the the dips were deeper and the, the bounce backs were never quite so high. But I think because they were external, they, you tend to think, oh, it must be external. Let's, let's wait, to, wait for us to get through this and then see where things are. I'm sure Hong Kong will recover. Why isn't the fact that Hong Kong is tied to the mainland and they're looking at more us becoming very much a part of the Pearl River Delta? Surely that should be a time of giving, you know, uh, many children now are growing up essentially trilingual with Mandarin and English. Why isn't that becoming a pool of potential employees across the border? I think we'll have to see how this unfolds over the next 10, 10 or so years from an economic perspective. Uh, people, a lot of people talk about integration with the Pearl River Delta. I'm never quite sure what they mean by integration. If you think, you know, what happened through the through the 1980s and 1990s, Hong Kong was totally, uh, totally driven by the, the Pearl River Delta and what the industries it, it nurtured there. So obviously that was fairly integrated, or was it a partnership? I think of it probably as more as a partnership. Now the question is, what kind of partnerships are there for Hong Kong companies? The logistics and trade ones still doing very nicely. The finance ones still doing very well. Those, I think those two areas, and between them, they count for more than Hong Kong, half the Hong Kong economy still doing just fine it's, it's the the newer areas that hong kong hasn't discovered and maybe that's just one of those things maybe the the opportunities have, haven't presented themselves no one's quite seen them if we look back over the 1960s to the 1990s i mean there's a, you know hong kong has had some huge challenges this is this enormous influx pre preceding that of tens of thousands of refugees 
and it sorted it out. Everything that it's faced, it sorted it out as it's gone along. And that, and Hong Kong has also been incredibly able to adapt. Can't it adapt again? Yeah, when I look back at those periods, you do think it was amazing what Hong Kong did, particularly twice to transform itself immediately after the Second World War into this light manufacturing centre, one of the, the biggest light manufacturing centres in the world. And then again in the, the 1980s when it went from being a manufacturing centre to being a services centre, moved its manufacturing into the mainland. Seemed, there's been an assumption that, oh yes, it can pull that trick off again, as if this happens automatically. Uh, maybe, maybe there was some element of luck in both those transformations. It was able to see an opportunity to move into. Now, I don't think the opportunities are quite so obvious. There's no, nothing where you can say, oh, this is what Hong Kong should be doing. It's the same with land. I mean, I think the shortage of land here, the problem with the housing... There are a lot of small solutions which might help a little bit, but there's no really obvious big solution that can be done without angering a lot of people, or angering a lot of important people, or, or making a lot of people lose a lot of the value of their, their the houses, the homes they own. By doing what? Well, if you were to engineer a sharp decline in the value of property, for example, make houses more affordable, then I think a lot of people who have bought a flat in the last whatever, 5, 10, 15 years who own flats would be extremely, extremely annoyed and angered. And I don't think that would be particularly good for Hong Kong to have a huge section of people annoyed and angered at that. How would you solve the housing? I don't have any answers to this. I think this is a real, a really tricky, a really tricky problem. I think uh, the government has done a lot over the decades. I think the massive public housing it's always one of the most surprising things about Hong, this, Hong Kong. This is supposedly laissez-faire society with nearly half of its population living in, in public housing. Maybe I think I would start focusing on improving the quality of the housing, looking at ways of uh, making sure that flats weren't too small for people. There are no easy answers, I don't think. What about going into the country parks? I think the country parks are one of Hong Kong's finest things that you can, from almost anywhere in the city within... 15 minutes walk almost, find yourself walking in woods, forests, encountering wildlife, I and mean, that's a tremendous feature of Hong Kong. What would you say to Carrie Lam then, if you, if you feel that Hong Kong is gently on the slide, what would you sort of suggest to her, which are ways of, you know, not radically turning it around, but uh, improving the Hong Kongers lot? <laughs> I think that this is what I have to be very careful about ans answering. One of the ideas I've toyed with was whether she might want to embark on some kind of political reform based on the, uh, the 2014 proposals, which, after all, were rejected at the time quite thoroughly by the pro-Democrats. But they, they did have some form of a vote for everybody. So why not introduce that change and see what happens? In 1997, I mean, you know, you take it from the handover till now, but really, did the British colonial government leave Hong Kong with the right tools for proper political governorship? I mean, you know, in terms of the civil service, in terms of the legislative council and the executive council structure? Well, I'm not a big fan of colonies and colonialism, quite the opposite. But, yes, I think in, in 1997, Hong Kong was left in a reasonably pretty good condition over the last the 20 or 30 years before that. The government here had been quite serious about introducing various forms of you know, social reform and welfare reform. Its healthcare system, I think, was one of, was particularly strong. Its education system was obviously heading in the right direction. 
the pensions, no, that was very poor. And I think there was some treatment of, uh, say, people with special needs, uh, people who didn't quite fall into the mainstream, but also, you'd say, they didn't, the, the government didn't look after them very well. But I think the credit for things like the healthcare system in particular, maybe the education one as well. What about the voting structure, though? I mean, the fact that, I mean, that's surely sowed the seeds for Occupy and all sorts of things. The fact that, you know, um, you, you've got a government that, uh, you know, Chris Patton, uh, I, I sometimes, and maybe people will find me a bit critical, but I, I was never quite sure with Chris Patton whether he was actually establishing that for the future of Hong Kong sometimes in terms of the Legislative Council, etc., or whether he was just doing it to irritate Beijing. I was never quite sure about Chris Patton either, but whether he was doing it to irritate Beijing, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, I think the in 1997, or in the run-up to 1997, the big question was whether uh, Hong Kong would become more like the rest of China, or China would become more like like Hong Kong, more open and liberal. And in the 20 years since then, I think it's become quite obvious. <laughs> actually, neither of them has changed. This is why it's called the book a system apart. Hong Kong's system has actually drifted further from China over those 20 years, partly because China has, has also changed, and especially under Xi Jinping, become less liberal. So the, the places have, have moved apart. I don't think that was what people, anyone was anticipating in 1997. I've asked myself quite often what, what policies should Hong Kong bring in. I don't think it's obvious. I don't think the, the government is sitting there missing obvious tricks, obvious things they should do. Uh, if I was them, I would invest more in education. I think that is an area of long-term growth, long-term potential that has to, you know, has to be, you have to keep on putting money into that. I would, I would like to see more um, welfare provision, especially for the elderly, and especially as Hong Kong will be an, an aging society, they're going to have to think quite hard about how to look at how people can be looked after in a decent way over the next few decades. In terms of, uh, you know, tertiary education has increased. Do you think that there's enough emphasis, though, on vocational education to ensure that we have the plumbers, the electricians? Because, you know, I think there is this pressure for children to move forward and become lawyers, doctors and solicitors. I'm a great believer in education that is more general, more abstract, that gives people skills in thinking. I think those are the, the skills that people will find the most adaptable in the future to a very fast-changing society, a very fast-changing world. You don't want to get locked into knowledge of, of this year's technology or next year's technology. You want to be able to have the, the kind of minds that can, can cope with change and happily absorb it. I think uh, I would like to see more people studying things like literature and philosophy and science as well, uh, rather than maybe accountancy and law. Do you think another issue with, I mean, uh, you know, there's always this thing of British colonial governments having left, you know, a civil service in place, a, a good transport system. This is always this, this, uh, this sort of British reputation as opposed to, say, the Port Portuguese or Belgians. But in terms of Britain, you know, you start your book uh, at 1997, but was the structure in place um, in terms of, yes... We had a very, we've got a very efficient public transport system, which keeps it very cheap for the populace. I came here to talk to you on the 70 bus from Aberdeen, uh, case in point. It cost me $4.70. I can't remember when it wasn't $4.70, which is incredibly cheap. In terms of issues like, uh, you know, we've got the, the tram, the MTR. I've often thought, though, in order to solve congestion problems, should that all be made free, or do you think that that's getting too much into policies across the border? 
Uh, I think one of the things that struck me when I arrived in Hong Kong was how well the city functioned. Transport uh, was obviously one of them, but in generally, a lot of things are very, very straightforward when I first arrived, and it's still straightforward, uh, like moving around on public transport, which, like you say, is still very, very reasonably priced, or getting a mobile phone, still very, very reasonably priced. A lot of that basic stuff works very well in Hong Kong. What hasn't happened, though, is, I think, improvements. And if, you're going to pick, if I was going to pick out one area, it would be, thing, say, waste disposal. That Hong Kong, there's no, uh, no way in which rubbish is, is separated and disposed of in the appropriate manner. It's just thrown out, and there's a lot of complaints about landfill being... Landfill, the disposal of waste through landfill becoming a big problem. Well, I think a lot of this just hasn't been tackled properly over the last 20 years. Those kind of issues, environmental ones, thinking more about a really sustainable city. Uh, how, how could that be developed? In 1997, you say you wrote an article that was looking at a projection over the next few years um, and you know Hong Kong's financial outlook. If you were asked to do that, what would your thoughts be for the next few years? I would. Uh, one of the things I did when I was putting the notes, my notes and my draft together for this book was to say no predictions. I don't think it's very wise to make predictions. I think what you can do is you can look at the, the, the things that have determined how a place like Hong Kong, what's shaped it, why it's like it is now, and what possibilities that opens up, what things you can do from now. Uh, where they will go, who knows? That depends on which, which choices are made. I, I, I think it's very dangerous to make predictions. Think about what you can do, uh, what makes sense to do. And what would you like to see done? I mean, you've, you've uh, lived here a long time, you've made your life here, um, and uh, you know, you've been looking at uh, the past 20 years of Hong Kong. We're not suggesting here that there's uh, any easy solutions, the situation is quite complicated. Uh, but what, what are some perhaps simple steps that could be taken? Again, one of the things I thought about quite hard through the, the book was how to describe uh, the rest of China. Do, you just call, do, you, do I call it the mainland or China or other parts of China or the rest of China? I, I usually came down on other parts of China, that Hong Kong is a part of China and there are other parts of China. And I think this was, this was, this was something that was quite important to me. I've never been happy with the usage of the mainland. Some like mainlanders always sounds a bit condescending. Uh, but Hong Kong is part of China now. Uh, whether it will always stay part of China, I don't know. That's a... That's, a, that's another issue. I think if I was, when I'm looking at it, I think how does Hong Kong make sense of being part of China at this point in time? What kind of relationship does it want with other parts of China, with Guangdong, its immediate neighbour, and with uh, Beijing, the leaders in Beijing? What kind of relationship does it want to put in place? And I think that would be where I would concentrate the thinking. How advantageous is uh, plans like Belt and Road for Hong Kong? How, how much is that going to give Hong Kong an opportunity? I think it makes a lot of sense for China. Uh, I'm Xi Jinping. I'm looking out at the, the world, tying myself in and helping development of neighbouring countries makes a lot of sense. For Hong Kong, it seems a bit more indirect to me. Maybe there are some opportunities for specific businesses, but not in the, in the general the, the, the general schemes of things. It looks in a slightly different direction from where Hong Kong tends to look. So I, I, I wouldn't be too excited about it myself. You never know, something might pop up.
My thanks to Simon Cartledge, author of A System Apart, Hong Kong's Political Economy from 1997 until now. In June 1928, GOW made its first radio transmission. It would later become ZBW before Radio Hong Kong and then Radio Television Hong Kong. To mark the 90th anniversary of radio in Hong Kong, I'll be presenting a special Hong Kong Heritage series during June to mark the early years of broadcasting. Mainly we listened to it for the BBC News. That was the main thing. And uh, in particular, uh, on September 3rd, 1939, um, it was a Sunday, and uh, we'd been to the pictures in the evening, and when we came home we turned into the news... And that was when we heard that we were at war with Germany. Do you remember what you saw at the pictures? Um, Bachelor Mother with Ginger Rogers. <laughs> Barbara Anslow there. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>